1: From the palmetto swamps to the piney woods to the oak flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bow Hunter Podcast. Come on.
0: You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast presented by Relentless Boats, custom aluminum fabrication right down on the bayou in Thibodeau. A couple of new things coming out here. 2021, we've teased it a couple of times and um, we're really getting down to it where there's going to be some certain designs, a certain series of boats when you go through that custom build form on the website. You'll uh, be able to find out more about what different type of hull options there's going to be when you go to build out your custom boat. So if you've been in the market or you're interested, exactly the type of design and the type of uh, features that you'd expect from an outdoors company, a uh, boat builder right down on the bayou in Thibodeau. So live relentless, boat relentless, relentlessboatsla.com. Kyler, uh, I guess as everyone listens to this, for the majority of the state, we're we're like two days left in the season, and I know you. Yeah, prob- the majority. Yeah, I know you yeah, probably haven't true. hunted much, um, having a lot of success this year. Uh, but um, I I've, I don't know if you've recognized this, but I have noticed, and it's been a little bit surprising to me. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because I've been kind of in a lull, so everything tends to exist in your own bubble sometimes, you know. Um, but I have been surprised here over the last week or so how many people I'm seeing have success. I in a lot of different ways, both both late season style hunting and as well as like this late flurry of rut in parts of the state. Have mm-hmm. you noticed that?
2: Uh I have. Yes. I um I I came to a conclusion back before Christmas that uh I can't kill a deer without water um pretty much if it's dry and leaves are on the trees i i couldn't find a buck if you tied to a tree um but once the water gets up and the woods have gotten rained on over and over and it actually starts holding it and you get that four to six inches of water what that does i think a lot of places especially like the atchafalai basin area um uh, some of the river bottom areas it that, that four to six inches, sometimes a foot to a foot and a half of water really starts to expose travel routes and um, ridges, and, um, and and also, more importantly, it, it can kind of focus the deer in an area, and um, a lot of the people that I'm seeing get on deer even to this day are hunting in the middle of sloughs. To where there is no dry ground, you have to, you have to hang your your bow and your backpack on a limb, so that you can climb your tree and, and then hook it with the pull up rope and then figure out some way to yeah, get you can't it back down without getting wet. Yeah, and yeah. and so um, you know, I I see that as uh, that that's been a huge hugely important part of my success this season because once the water comes up it's like oh it's game on um and we had a really dry year this year but we've also had and we remember an, an incredible kickoff to open opening day with low temps uh, you know in the 50s relatively low and everybody kicked it off really hard and then it didn't rain a drop until the middle of December, pretty much anywhere, and now the woods are filling up like they usually are from December on, and people are just hammering them. It's awesome to see. I agree. It's so when you say surprise, like I I love it. I love to yeah see people just get in it and just crushing them all the way to the last day of the season. It's 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 fun yeah, to watch.
0: I, I guess yeah. When I say surprised, I mean just like I said. I'm I've i've had a down year and that's you know been mentioned too many times over but and i think that oftentimes we do we tend to exist in our own bubble where you know the factors that are affecting me i tend to expect that from everything around me and um you know even right here behind my house i had my neighbor shot a nice deer yeah uh no it wasn't yesterday it was the day before but anyway he called me and he i don't i don't think he recovered the deer he called me for permission to come onto our property to look for it but uh you know he said yeah and it was like monday i think or or i guess it would have had to have been monday and um you know the weather's not been good and i'm thinking to myself like i wouldn't even got up and went hunting this morning like what are you doing you know and um there's been no activity on cameras back there you know nothing to speak of and uh, he's like yeah I'm, you know one one of the bigger bucks i've had on camera all year just came into a food plot at 7.30 this morning following a dough and I'm like, "Do what? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like, are you kidding me? And yeah. uh, so it's just, it, I, I don't know. But anyway, I, 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 so I guess this front is still kind of wet and nasty. It's been that way for like four or five days now, but we're supposed to have some cool weather rolling here midweek. Uh, I guess this is midweek, but I think after what we've got going on today, I think we're start, starting to cool down. And I'm going to break my my strike i've been kind of after about a week or so ago i finished that media deal i was doing and i said you know what i'm having such bad luck i'm fixing to just hang it up for the season and just call it done and quit torturing myself but i think i'm going to try one more time on friday because it looks like it's going to be pretty weather and so spend the day hunting with my dad so we'll yeah, see go we'll, do it man we'll see uh well, good luck so I, I think a good segue into today's podcast is uh i i don't I feel like I've done this oftentimes in my in my uh seasons as a bow hunter and I don't I can say that I haven't in a while and I'm not this year. My 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 less than desirable year has nothing to do with my performance. It has to do with my inability to have anything to perform with if that makes any sense. Um you know just not not getting deer in range not seeing deer really but i think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of times when we get to this point in the season and people have maybe missed some opportunities and they start to regret the way they prepared um maybe start feeling like there's some things they need to work on to be a better archer maybe they're looking at you know this year i'm going to spend more time in the summer doing some of those 3d tournaments some of those archery tournaments or just generally implementing a more uh committed strategy towards their practicing to be better maybe they missed a deer made a bad shot and 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 and, uh, lost a deer that they had the hunt that they had hunted really hard or something like that so uh we've been asked about shooting form and practice routines and just different tips and techniques from an actual archery coaching kind of standpoint so we are very pleased and and um excited to to have john dudley join us here on the podcast today from knock on and um he's going to just kind of try to answer some of our questions and share some of what he does as an archery coach so john thanks so much for joining us man how's it going
1: good thanks dude yeah so long as i've
0: ever been quiet (laughs) (laughs) and look look, you got it pretty well because sometimes me and tyler get to talk like during the middle of the season when we actually have stories to tell because we're doing a lot of hunting those those intros sometimes i feel bad i'm like man we really need to speak to the guest he's probably just like (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so i know kyler um we, we actually posted a little something on our um, social media last night because we felt like this was one of those topics where we could gather some questions from our community that, that would be valuable in the podcast. And I know we have some of that. I wanted to – kind of the first thing I wanted to do, and then, and then I want Kyler to, to, to kind of throw out a lot of these questions and hit those kind of things. But I wanted to get you to kind of – for people who don't follow knock-on and follow you and what you do, you have the school of knock um with with your podcast and i i'd like to give you an opportunity to just kind of explain what that is and 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 so people can can check that out
1: well several years ago um i was actually coming off a of deer season exactly like you guys are talking about right now and for me i've always utilized december um as a time to really start shooting again and working on technique because my hunting normally starts in August and you know I hunt out west in August and then come all the way into you know deer season starting at the first of October and then eventually you know hunting all through November and although I do hunt you know down south some in December and January the reality is I'm not sitting all day like I do in November So it's kind of a reset period for me, and I had a lot of people asking, you know, what do you do as soon as season's over? And my answer was, I start training right away, because I really felt like there was no better time um, to to really pick up and start working on finesse and technique again there was no better time than at the end of the season when technically my technique and my practice was at its worst. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's so many things you do that aren't ideal during an entire hunting season. You know, it's not like you're, you're practicing on level ground. It's not like, you know, you're able to practice in a controlled environment or shoot on days where the weather's good. You know, most of the time, if you're, if it's hunting season, you're going to go out and rip a couple rounds next to your truck before you get into a stand. And I just felt like it kind of goes back to a basic principle and something that, you know, even when I have students here, I'll tell them, you know, I always prefer to finish finish on a positive note. So I took that same principle and applied it to my training of, I want to finish out my year shooting well so i would always you know start training indoors during that month of december and just going back to the basics of shooting and and really stepping it all the way back to the the very first fundamental of you know just shooting more reps but then breaking it down into you know spending a week just focusing on my stance just a week focusing on my grip And just polishing that. And I decided to just document it because so many people were asking, you know, why are you, you know, why are you shooting indoors right now? Or, you know, how come this week you're talking about stance so much? And it was really because what I post is things that I'm doing in my everyday life. So I just decided to make that very first school of knock that was really focused on the principles and getting back into proper shooting technique. And I really feel like it's a perfect thing to either utilize at the end of a season, when you start up a new year, or, you know, if you don't do that, then don't be afraid to put this to practice in the summertime leading up to season. So that once you go into season, you're a hundred percent polished on technique and obviously, you know, having, Having some type of, you know, positive reinforcement or having really high self-esteem with how you're shooting is going to make you a better bow hunter. Which is why I always shot target archery. It was, it wasn't, you know, I, I enjoyed target archery, but I always wanted to be a better bow hunter. You know, that's that's what I wanted to be.
0: I guess without this, this is probably going to sound more like something you would do at the end but before we you know get into a lot of question and answer what's the best way for people to dive into that school of knock and into that resource and and learn more about what you're doing
1: well if they go to our website um, knockonarchery.com the website's really really um, a great tool because obviously there's going to be like a store section of the website which generates a lot of traffic but there's also a site where you can you can either scroll down and you know click like on the school and knock or click on the video section and it'll take you into a database of free content and you can select from four different categories of of videos and, you know, and then depending on what you're looking for, you know, some people are just going in specifically to look for uh, a school of knock. Some people are going in to maybe look at how to do a product maintenance or something like that. So if you go in there, like if you scroll down, you'll see it says school of knock and there's a little sign there that says get started. And then, there's a category drop-down box, so you can either have learn to shoot, or hunting seasons, or a technical and tuning side. You can see, you know, some of the bow building instructional videos or product reviews. Um, but within there, there's a number of different topics that you can work on. But the school of knock, I'm in the third season now, which we just uh, we just posted the fourth one yesterday. The fourth part to, to season three and this whole season is dedicated to using the off season to cure target panic and buck fever.
2: Nice. So
1: this is a, this is actually a four week course, um, that you can get for free that will walk you through all of the steps for that. Now you can also go to our YouTube channel. If you're not a website person, you can go to the knock on archery YouTube channel. And, or just go to YouTube and just, you know, type in John Dudley, you know, target panic or, you know, John Dudley, how to grip a bow. I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of free content between the YouTube and the, and the website for people to dive into.
0: Cool. Well, so I think one of the number one things that we talk about when it comes to I'm having trouble, how do I get better, um, how do I fix this from current archers and bow hunters is target panic. So, Kyler, I know that you have some ideas and thoughts and questions, so let's just start there. It's a good segue as we come off of that topic. Let's start sure. with that.
2: Um, so, yeah, as far as target panic goes, um, what are what are some signs that people can look for that they might – kind of be um uh, it's kind of creeping in on them what are some signs of target panic for somebody that may have never heard of it before
1: well you know what's funny about target panic is a lot of people hear the name which i've always said the name isn't great um you know it's just it's kind of it almost sounds so bad that most people are like well i don't have that but then um, (laughs) yeah but then, you know, because it's not like they're scared to shoot or panicking to take their bow out of the case. But the reality is, if they anticipate when they, when their trigger goes off, so if they're trying to put their pin on the target and make the trigger goes off, or if you have someone where you say, okay, draw back and aim at the bullseye, and I want to see how slow you squeeze this trigger, there's very few people that can do it without punching that trigger, you know, or just forcing that trigger to go off or you can tell they lift the bow up and kind of flinch and squeeze the trigger at the same time. There's some that Mm -hmm. draw back. And as soon as they're in the middle of that, that dot too long, they kind of, you can see them kind of like double clutch and flinch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are all signs of having, you know, target panic, quote unquote, or what I like to, you know, call it more is, is trigger anticipation. You know, there's different types. There's, there's some that just, you know, that cannot have their index finger um, be slow on a trigger to where it continually pulls and moves until the, till you get a surprise shot. There's some people that just cannot hold their pin in the center of the bullseye and allow that squeezing of the trigger to happen they have to lift their pin into the scoring ring and punch or into the kill zone and punch there's some people that just you know freak out and draw back and just hold underneath the deer and they can never really get it up and and they shoot or there's some people that just end up putting an ant you know putting an arrow between the antlers because they're so fixated on something other than the shot process. So
0: there's hmm. actually a lot hmm.
1: of different like forms of it, but I guess the best way to, to describe it is you, you have some sort of a condition. If you can't draw back, you know, anchor properly, center your front sight and your rear sight, put your pin, within the center of the object that you're trying to shoot let's just say you know let's say you have a two inch uh dot drawn on a on a paper plate if you can't sit there and let your pin float around and move around on that two inch dot while you go through you know four to seven seconds of you know squeezing on that trigger or pulling through your shot and feeling no anxiety or no rush for that shot to go off. Um, If you can't do that, then you have some sort of a disconnect. And the best, the best archers in the world that are consistently the best are the ones that can. Now there's certainly guys. uh, And I was one of them that could go out and have very good timing for freezing under the target and lifting the trigger and punching the target or just punching the, the trigger as you're going by the target. Mm -hmm. But the the reality is those types of those styles of shooting have very high peaks and very low valleys And it's a, you know, it, it just, it, it isn't a very stable graph. It's you have awesome days and then you go out and miss a buck of a lifetime or, you know, or if you're in a tournament, you know, you're in the top 10, then you're nowhere to be found on the first two sheets of paper. And it's, it's really deflating. And what happens is once you realize, oh no, I got it again it's really hard to get out because you don't have any confidence. You know, you, you have, you just, it's almost like it it compounds on itself because if you've got it and then your buddies ask you to a league and someone says like, dang, bro, you're freaking double clutching the trigger. Then all of a sudden it's just like, Oh shit, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And it just gets worse and worse. And at some point you have to just like pull the plug and completely reset everything about what you're doing and reprogram to where you're able to to start executing the right technique, but more importantly, not rush it to the point where it doesn't become ingrained as a habit and as a confidence. So some people, you know, just look for that placebo, right? They, they just... Mm-hmm they, they go out and, you know, it's just, it's no different than, um, it's no different than, than going golfing. It's like, if you want to, if you want to have a good day driving on the course, borrow your friend's driver, you know, because when you got a new driver, holy cow, you know, I, I remember, I remember one time, uh, I went out and I was playing with my dad. My dad had this, you know, brand new tailor made driver and I went out and started, uh, I was, I probably played like nine holes and just was killing it. And I remember looking at my dad and going, I'm going to have to get one of these. And he said, and he said, he goes, well, if you want to keep playing like that, you better not buy that son of a bitch, you know? (laughs) And, (laughs) And so, you know, that kind of resonated with me of, you know, placebos are always temporary, but reprogramming takes time and it takes, it takes repetition to where you make it become a habit. And it's been, you know, documented psychologically that creating a habit takes at least 21 days of continual repetition so you know you can't just go out and follow you know how to cure target panic part one and do it one you know do it for 15 minutes and then be like okay i'm gonna watch part two and i'll put that together i spaced them out a week at a time for a specific reason it's like if someone really wanted to fix it they would do it and honestly the very first video doesn't go very deep into what you're going to do. It goes deep into what you're going to think because what people struggle with and this, honestly, it, it, it kind of falls right in line with being an alcoholic. You know, the first step is knowing what you have and admitting that you have it and making the, Serious conscious decision of I'm not okay having this anymore. I realize it's a problem and I'm going to commit myself to get out of this. And that's a big part of the first one is me being very methodical about explaining what is going on in your head because I struggled with it myself for 10 years and remember very vividly when I, when I finally took the steps to get out of it and I've helped, you know, I've, I've coached thousands and thousands and thousands of people around the world. Um, and uh, uh, the mass majority of them, as soon as I get next to them and watch them shoot and get close, I'm just like, Oh man, yeah, they've got they've got one form or another. And I'm talking like probably ninety percent or better can't execute a perfect shot. And this and and granted some of that number factors in a considerable amount of national teams that I've worked mm-hmm. with. It you know, it's just that is what separates the cream from the crop is who can execute a shot and 100% focus on the fundamentals, and trust the float of their pin, and just worry about what's happening from the center line of their body behind that line that they're standing on? Everyone else is focused down on the target, and it's a very reversed way of thinking about it. Because is is it almost like seeing
2: yourself from behind, like like an existential view of yourself? Is that what you're saying?
1: No, it's not. It's not like um, I mean, like a third I've person. Had, I've I guess. Had de- yeah, I've had days where I've felt that way, like in a flow state, where you kind of, you know, where you perform better than than what you think, and you know, you're mm-hmm. you're kind of in this in this crazy zone. I've had that, but this is really a different way of coaching because everything that people are taught is, you know, drawback put that pin on that target. And so right away, all the focus is going forward of your center line of your body. It's all about what's happening in the front. And what happens is when people want to start aiming really solid, they start compressing their body to lock it up to be more stable and so they can press that shoulder back or they bend that elbow tight and compress that shoulder back. And they kind of, I call it shooting small. They, they take their whole body and they shrink it up to where you're mm-hmm. almost stiff. Like you're doing a forward, like double pec flex, you know, where you're, you're locking everything to where you're stiff and you're stable on the target. And then what happens is now that you're stable, well, you're stable most likely off of the target, whether it's underneath or whether it's above, you know, people have different places that they freeze and then you're just perfectly still there and you can just be there forever. And they're waiting and waiting, waiting. And then finally they just put the pin on the target and hit the trigger. Whereas my way of coaching, um, is very, it parallels Olympic style archery. So, you know, Olympic archers, they have a they have a t formation so they're very expanded in their technique they're not compressed so they have a a big proud t stature and what a what an olympic style recurve shooter is doing is, is they're drawing back they're coming to their anchor position and once they're there they're getting their pin on the target relatively quickly and they're totally trusting how much they're moving around on the target because your subconscious honestly knows what you want. And it's, even though you're moving off the target, your subconscious is already making the corrections to bring it back on. And as they're trusting that float, they're continually pulling dynamically and focusing on the movement that's behind their center line. And that elbow is coming back and they're continually building pressure on the bow. And in an Olympic style recurve situation, they have what's called a clicker. On their bow Mm -hmm. so when they pull to an exact length that click happens and then they're letting go of the string now it's important for them to do that because they have to for their speed and their ballistics to be consistent they have to pull to the exact same length and they have to have the exact same poundage every time that arrows let go because obviously with the recurve the further back you pull it um, it just keeps increasing in poundage and obviously the longer you pull it the more power stroke you have so you know they're just pulling until they hit that exact length and they're letting go and they're regardless of where the their pin is they're doing that same motion so with compound archery I really focus on what's happening behind the line I look at my target and and I stare at my target and I let my pin kind of be you know, in my foresight, that's, I can see that it's moving around on there, but I don't fixate specifically on the pin. You know, I look past the pin. I look through the pin. I know what the pin's doing, but I'm very focused on just letting that float happen. Now, one of the exercises that I did, and you can find this, um, on my IGTV is, was called trust the float. And Trusting the float was a technique that I had people do where they, they aimed at a a relatively large target. For example, um, honestly, if you're like 20 yards or something, you could do this with like a paper plate and, you know, take the inner half of that paper plate and, you know, put a sticker on it or draw a big black dot on it. And the, what I want people to do is to draw back, go through their shot process, and with, without having their finger on the trigger, I want them to, one, I want you to see, can you hold your pin in the center of that target? And if the answer is yes, when your finger's off the trigger, then that's 100% an indicator that you definitely have some target anticipation. But what I want people to do specifically for this exercise is I want you to hold or do your best to hold With on that dot for about 10 seconds, but mentally trace what your pin's doing because your pin is going to have a natural float. You know, some people go up and down. Some people kind of have a figure eight. Some people go side to side. Some people are pretty solid for a while and then kind of bobble out and come back in. But then what I do is I'll actually have another another target right next to me to where i can take a marker and i can write exactly what i saw my pin doing and i'll do that for three or four shots and then what happens is the result is very clear on paper and it's 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 honestly a, a very important visual for people to understand even though i'm moving off the target and a lot of people get scared when they move off the target, so they force it back on and hit the trigger. The reality is, 90% of the time, when you're floating around, you're gonna see that your marker is super consolidated within that, and yes, there's, there's little times where you've swerved off the road and you've gone out there, but if you really see it and you realize, holy cow, I've got this large mass that's within the center, and 90% of the time I'm within where I want to be, even though I'm moving all around. So nine out of 10 shots right there, you're, you're going to be in the middle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So people really struggle with that because they want to see a perfectly solid sight picture and that's just not going to happen. So if you trust that float, and then focus on just a continual dynamic pull against the back wall of your of your bow until that shot goes off then the accuracy that you can achieve is just at a completely different level it's almost like it's a different game you know it's almost like you would need to have people that are trigger punchers in one category and people that execute a surprise unanticipated shot in another category Because a lot of the times it's not even fair, you know, for people that can shoot archery with a total surprise shot. It's just, you're so much more accurate over the long haul. Yeah. The,
2: um, the, the issue you brought up about coming from up from underneath and freezing was what I struggled with. Um, I struggled to um, I struggled to come up from the bottom and come into the kill zone on a deer and make a good shot. And I kind of psychoanalyzed myself to, and concluded that it was, um, number one, it was lack of preparation. And I had a whole lot of things going on in my life, starting a new business, quitting a very stable job with, uh, just a lot of things happening in my life. And I wasn't prioritizing archery, shooting and practice and bow hunting. And I had this um, uh, incorrect belief that it was kind of like riding a bike. Once you got good at it and killed a bunch of deer, it should be something that you retained. And I learned a really big lesson in humble pie last year, working through that. And, um, one of the questions I had for you was what, what is, um, what's your method of, of bringing the pin to the target? Do you come up from the bottom and then float. Do you come from the top and float or went from the second you come to full jaw? Are you bringing the pin straight to it and trying to stay on it the whole time?
1: Well, I typically come from underneath, uh, but with that said, um, honestly, I'm kind of to the point now where when I, when I start to frame up the target, the majority of the time, I'm I'm honestly on the target when that starts, mm. um, you know, like if I draw back on a on a on a bullseye, you know, back here at 20 yards or if I shoot at my elk at 80 yards, when I point my bow to the target and draw back and, and anchor and then adjust my head to where I'm looking through my peep sight, my pin is normally relatively close to that position if anything it's it's under it um but one of the things that's tough is for many people one of the first things that they did in shooting sports was you know kind of going out and playing with a shotgun you know or some people might have you know might have learned with a handgun but what makes it difficult is with those two things a a lot of the teaching utilizes like posting, you know, where you're, you're actually posting that site picture, you know, you're putting what you're looking at right under the right over the top of the bead. You know, if you, if you think about, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, if you think pump, about pump on pistol, the post. yeah, lollipopping, you know, is, is like, if you're getting, you know, hand, handgun coaching, it'd be called lollipopping. Um, but there's not a lot of people that are comfortable completely covering an object, yes, but with archery and especially the vast differences in distances and vast differences in like the size of the target you're looking at, you really do need to cover it. So one of the other things that I describe in that, in that series is I call it subconscious peaking. So a lot of the movement that you see is because your subconscious mind wants confirmation that what you're telling it to hit is still in fact there because it's no different than playing peekaboo or honestly, like I always do this with my dog and it's hilarious. If my lab is looking at me and like kind of interested in what I'm doing, if I hide my face, like she can't take it. You know, none of my dogs ever have, like they want to see you.
0: And hmm, so like,
1: yeah. if I, you know, if I hide my face behind like my kitchen chair, she's going to come around to where she can look at me and your subconscious plays that same game. So if you can imagine, um, you know, picking a little spot on a target and now covering it up with a pin. Well, your conscious mind is, you know, your conscious mind is saying, okay, go through the shot process, you know, stance, grip, front shoulder, anchor, peep, your bubble's good, you know, okay, I'm totally trusting that float. I'm going to let off the safety and I'm going to continually pull back, pull back, pull back. That's what your conscious mind should be doing, um, which it can only do one thing at a time. Then your subconscious mind is thinking, well, this guy's only gonna be happy if I hit the center. And the only way I'm gonna hit the only way I'm gonna hit that target, I need to I need to know where it's at. Is it still there? Is it still there? Is it still there? So it actually is reacting with your motor skills and it's taking that pin and it's moving it just enough to where it can see that what you're telling it to do is still there. So it's peaking, you know, whether it's dipping down a little bit or moving to the right or moving to the left, but it's always returning back to center, and it's letting the conscious do what it wants to do, but it's also just kind of playing its game of peekaboo. So mm-hmm. I I describe it as well, you know, there's a a method, um, you know, I tell people, all right, if you get in a car. And you know, we're out on the greater Salt Lake flat, you know, and we need to drive all the way to California and it's a straight shot. Are you gonna hold the steering wheel in a perfectly fixed position the whole way? You know, and it's like, no, you never do. You know, if you set your hand on the top of a steering wheel and drive in a straight line, you're gonna see that your hand is moving from ten thirty to one thirty and you're just you're tracking straight, but you're also allowing that natural flow of the wheel to happen and you're moving it and moving it and you're making those adjustments, you know, just like on a boat, you know, you're not, you're moving that. And even though your boat's not zigzagging around, you're making subconscious adjustments, knowing how it's going to react later on. So that natural float of the pin is just like both of those examples. And if you can learn to accept that, then your ability for trigger activation is, or your patience for trigger activation is just going to be on a completely different horizon.
0: That is a fantastic analogy and it makes so much, it's so logical, but I guess I've never thought about that. I mean, obviously we all know that you can't, hold in one position you're holding a steering wheel you're you know that's a great analogy that's that's really cool
1: yeah and i think one of the things you said earlier i'm just gonna correct you on um if i'm if i'm wearing my coach's hat go ahead (laughs) well when you said like you know i was going through this year and i didn't practice and blah 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 i mean honestly that's like a pile of excuses and the truth is if you focus on shooting properly and learn and make a commitment to learn good technique, it's a hundred percent like riding a bike. You know, we make archery very hard. And what I tell people is a bad archery shot is the hardest one to make. And what I mean by that is when you, draw back and you're like, man, I'm thinking about this and I got to tuck this in and I'm doing this. And then next thing you know, you're on the target and you feel like you're just there forever and ever and you're floating around. And then finally, by the time you shoot, you're just like, oh my God, you know, I'm glad I got that arrow gone. Like those shots are the hardest to make. We've put in way more effort. And what I tell people is how many times have you just drawn back, like you're not thinking about anything? You draw back on a target, you kind of anchor, you start looking through your peep and come to your trigger, and then that thing's just like thump, it goes off, and you're kind of startled, like surprised, and then you're and you're, and then you're worried about like, oh crap, where did that arrow go? And you look down there and it's in the center. Though yeah. like that's actually what a good archery shot feels like. And the truth is good shots take way less effort because when everything is firing correctly, then you actually have to put so much less like muscular um, activity into it. It's very technique oriented. And honestly, all of those school knock segments and series just build you into this thing and like my wife and my son are are very good examples the very first time they wanted to start shooting archery i started them out with um, attention activated release like our silverback release that we have um and for those listening don't know what that is it's a release where you have to actually hold the trigger down Anytime you draw it back, or if you wanted to relax your bow, you always hold the safety down. So you're pushing on a trigger with your thumb. But once you get to full draw and you're actually ready to start your shot activation, you would just relax your thumb off of that trigger, off of that safety, or that, you know, for a lot of people, they refer to it as a trigger. And once you relax it off, the only way that release is going to fire is if you continually pull against the back wall of your bow for until you hit a des, a desired or a preset poundage that's above your holding weight so just to simplify this you know if someone's shooting an 80 percent let off cam on a 70 on a 70 pound bow you're going to be holding 14 pounds when you pull your bow back and your bow stops it's 14 pounds so what In their case, what I would do is take this release and I would adjust it to where when that thing is pulled on to about, for them, about 18 pounds, 17 and a half to 18 pounds, it'll fire. So they're just going through this process of drawing back, anchoring, looking through the peep, getting their pin on the target, letting off their safety totally disregarding what's happening with their front pin moving around they're they're okay with that and they're trusting it and they just p- continually pull back with their elbow until they get a total surprise shot now for both of them they started out with this with a shot trainer which is simply a piece of like delete material connected to a bow grip and I literally set this up to where it was their draw length. And I talked to them, okay, draw back, anchor, you know, make sure your head's straight up and down, let off your safety. Now pull your elbow back, pull your elbow back, pull And they shot. And they did that for a couple weeks. And then it got to the point where I told them, okay, use the small spring on the top of that shot trainer and, you know, pick a target. And a lot of times I'd have them aim at like a mount that was in the house. And so every commercial break on TV, I had them just work on this technique and did that. And honestly, they never shot a bow for probably three weeks. And then I, I finally gave them their bow and they started implementing that exact same technique with a bow. And now it does not matter. Like, they're Sharon may not shoot for nine months, but then she might say like, hey, I want to go hunting. And guess what? If she picks that up, she can pick up exactly where she left off at you know honestly as can i as can my son as do a lot of shooters now there's certainly little nuances that you can say i wasn't really in shape like i struggled to pull my bow back you know or you know after i shot 20 shots i really felt myself leaning back you know there's technique breakdowns that you can have but if you really apply to learning what a good shot is and having a tool that allows you to make that shot you really can put your bow down and pick it up and be in a relatively similar place to where you left off and that's kind of what i was saying is during hunting season i don't get to shoot a lot so i just spend that post season just Kind of polishing my skills, you know, making sure I'm shooting a little bit more repetition. Focus on my stance consciously, really focus on my grip, so I'm not doing any type of torque that maybe I worked my way into a bad habit. But typically, if you step away and come back, if your technique is correct, you 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 shouldn't really have to worry about that. You know, if you're shooting a few arrows in a hunting situation um and honestly for some people they actually it's a lot like playing golf if you don't play for a while and then come back it seems like you always play awesome you know yep. for like three holes mm-hmm. agree. um because you're not thinking about it you're just like ah, oh, crap i forgot how to do this i'm just gonna do i remember i swing like this yeah and then you and then eventually you start overthinking it you know and get your slices back but um if you learn and commit yourself to learning the right way to begin with, I promise you if you have a year where you're not able to shoot a lot, you would probably be way better off like picking back yep. up because you're not like worried about oh crap last time I had target panic, I couldn't get my pin on the target like those are all super negative reinforcements that happen with people that have a bad have target panic, don't deal with it. Put their bow down and then now it's compounded on itself when it came back
2: my 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 issue with deer with hunting specifically and my problems making great shots on deer last year came from um almost the fact that i felt almost unfamiliar at shooting at a deer shaped object um like and and one of the ways that i got over this and got over that and worked through it was Every, I let a lot of deer pass last year, a lot let a lot of deer pass this year, but every single deer that walked by bow range or not, sometimes 60, 80 yards out, I would draw back or at a minimum, hold up my bow and put my pin on that deer and hold it in that spot where I would want to shoot them if I so chose to, whether my finger was on the trigger or not. And I kind of built, rebuilt that, um, confidence and familiarity of of being in a um that very last second shot like building that familiarity with that again and that helped me out tremendously a whole lot um but uh, that's what I, I would use I literally you I'd use a raccoon. I'd use an armadillo. I'd use a a doe. I'd use sometimes a fawn. Fawns were the best because they were the smallest targets. So they're harder to hold on. <laughs> you know, you get a spotted fawn in the woods and you draw back and leave your your finger behind the trigger and you have no intentions of shooting it. But like, hey, I'm gonna use you for building that familiarity again because that's what that's what I was really lacking last year. Um, was was that it wasn't so much a form aspect. It was more of just I had forgotten what it, what a deer looked like, um, but that worked well for me, and I didn't have any problems with it this year at all. Um,
0: it's it's but, interesting that you know a lot of people. I find this, and I so I, I do hitting lessons with baseball, and a lot of what we're talking about here applies there too, from the mental approach, uh, the consistent approach of you do it right, you learn to do it right, and then the trick there is to do it right over and over and i it's something that I, I mean i guess i'm taking this from kyler he's said it before um about a lot of different things we talk about but as humans like we're we're our own worst enemy you know we're constantly trying to change things we're we, we're, we're never you know whatever we ne- we never can settle it, it seems like we're always messing things up um it overcomplicating and things like that, and I feel like it's it's like when you walk out in your yard, those first couple of shots when you practice, they're always the best. You know, it's just like when you go out to the. I would say I don't play golf, but I know with baseball, you know, you go out there, you're you're, you're hitting and you're practicing. You know, your your swing feels so good, and instead of just sticking with it, you start doing things differently, trying to get better. And all you're doing is messing yourself up. I think, would you agree, like with bows, like with shooting archery, I find like I cannot shoot for weeks. And my first couple of shots are going to be great. And then, like, taking aside the fatigue side of things, uh, you know, like physically being tired and and, and losing my form or something. it's, It's like the more I shoot, the worse I get. And then I have to constantly remind myself to stop doing things differently. Just simplify it. And do it the way you know to do it.
1: Yeah, it's a very, very easy to uh, sport that's easy to overthink. Um, you know, it's there's there's kind of a lot of coordination with archery. You know, people are trying to take certain certain muscles and do certain things. And honestly, a big a big hurdle for archery is just the fact that you know a lot of people just rely on kind of the five minutes that an archery shop is able to give someone to teach them how to shoot archery. You know, I've said for, for quite a while that one of the things that's, that's really important for people is to actually, um, make sure they budget a little bit extra in their, their archery purchase to find someone that can give some some good lessons um you know take take a class from from you know from someone there at the shop if you know look hopefully you have an archery shop that has it but you know you may have to you may have to find it or you may have to to commit yourself to you know to like one of the series that we offer for free Um, but I really feel like it's critical that people don't just say, Hey, I'm just going to go and buy this bow and not learn the proper technique. I think you really have to, to go spend time to learn it the right way. And then, then at that point, it's actually much easier. So many people learn archery from observation of watching their friends shoot. And, and I just had, um, I just had a a guy here this past week, who's um, a retired seal, obviously has, you know, ridiculous amounts of, of training and different types of types of things. And when I watched him pull his bow, I said, "Uh, have you did you learn to shoot just by like watching your friends? And he goes, Yeah. And I said, so you've never really had lessons. He said, no, I haven't ever had any lessons. And honestly, what 90% of what he was doing was right. But what he wasn't doing correct was just simply pulling the bow back in an efficient manner. So he was pulling his bow back really low, like kind of level with his chest. And he was just kind of pulling low with his chest and then like coming up under his chin and like coming to that position, which honestly is very common for people who start out pulling too much weight, you know, they're not able to pull with their elbow level or with their hand hand level with the top of their shoulders or with their face to where they're literally drawing straight to their anchor position. He was just pulling super low, you know, and almost like making a bicep by his armpit and then coming up. And it was just because I knew he had watched other people draw a bow like that. It's not because that's, you know, how he needed to, to draw the bow. And once again, if, if someone would have just said like, Hey man, you know, you got this bow, first thing you should do, here's an awesome series, watch this, or Hey, let me, let me just give you some, you know, some important things to do um, that are going to be critical because, Otherwise, you learn from observation, and believe me, you know, uh, well, you guys know, like, my uncle is who I learned from, you know, John and I both, and, you know, Kenny Carlton is, is uh he's as self-taught in archery as they come, because there just wasn't many people bow hunting in the Mississippi Delta during the era that you know my uncle kenny was and you know obviously he was my mentor and a lot of what i struggled with for target panic was just watching kenny shoot and it wasn't necessarily stuff that he taught it was just stuff he had self-taught that you know later i come to find out is a big reason why you know i struggled with anticipation with my finger on a trigger and you know the same reason like my you know my cousin john did you know we our shooting was based off what we watched not what we personally applied and if someone did it the other way around i think archery overall would be in a really good place
0: yeah so i have a personal self-serving question then and okay it's it, I'm, I'm sure other people are would have this too so i i actually draw the way that you were just talking i don't do it because i think it's right i do it because my shoulder's messed up and i literally can't like so obviously with baseball and all that's part of my shoulder problem but i was hunting in kansas like seven eight years ago and it was really cold and I, just, I was standing there, and I decided it was freezing cold. I, I just want to practice drawing in case a deer walks out here and make sure everything's set, you know, good. And I drew, and something popped in my shoulder, and I've never gotten it fixed. And I can't hold my bow up and draw straight to my anchor point. It's like you're stabbing a knife down through the top of my shoulder. So I kind of have to draw low and come up to, you know, for what. So I'm curious, what are the disadvantages to, to doing that? You mentioned that guy you were coaching drew that way and that was something that he needed to correct what's the disadvantage to doing that
1: well there's a lot of them um if you so what what happens is like i told you earlier you're supposed to be in a t formation Mm -hmm. the more you can tort your body the harder it is for you to get your front shoulder into the right position once it has load bearing down on it so when you start to pull your bow back I can watch a lot of my students start their draw cycle and before they've got three inches of pull on their string, I'm already telling them, nope. Uh, and the reason why is because when you start to pull that way, your front, your front scapula, it, it's, it's a very complicated um, joint and it, it can move in a lot of different directions and, it, and most of the time people pack it backwards against their spine when they go to pull or they're pushing and pulling and then once they come to full draw the humerus is hyperextended and it ends up being high and then once you have a full load onto it and you start to try to pull the front shoulder just collapses and just slowly starts creeping back against your neck. So like if you draw back and you feel any type of pressure of your trap muscle or your delt against your, you know, your, for me, I'm a right-handed shooter. So if I felt left, the left side of my neck have any type of pressure pushing against it where my trap is touching it or my deltoid, that's 100% incorrect. If I pull back and I can feel my scapula pressed, slid back to where it's touching against my spine, that's also incorrect. Um, So learning to raise your bow straight towards the target and essentially putting your pin on the target, having your shoulder forward and down, and then drawing that release hand straight back to your face, it allows you to remain in this T formation And you don't start to contort your body by coming into your anchor point. The other thing that happens when you draw low is it's a huge red flag for facial pressure onto the arrow, which is a major, major uh, thing that that dramatically reduces accuracy. And so what happens when people pull low and he, he actually did this and granted his technique was probably better than, you know, six or seven out of 10 people that, that, you know, have self-taught, but what happens when you draw low, then you come up to your anchor and you kind of stack your facial tissue on top of either your anchor hand, your release, Or you put chin pressure or, you know, or facial tissue onto that, the rear portion of that arrow shaft. And that's just going to have a really quick, um, impact on the overall accuracy. Now, if you have an injury, you know, which, Hey, I've been there too with, with shoulder problems and, and I've dealt with, you know, I've dealt with you know, with para archers and stuff like that, you know, there, there's certainly times where you're working around an ailment and there's just nothing you can do. I mean, if you've got a partial tear on a rotator cuff and you're not fixing it and you're still trying to shoot archery, then yeah, you're going to struggle with pulling your bow back with your elbow any higher than your shoulder. Like it's just not going to happen. Um, so in that case, yeah, I mean, th- I'm, I, you, you probably are right. There's nothing you can really do about it, you know, if you have yeah. a tear or, a, or an old injury that you're dealing with. Um, but if that's the case, then you really should, you know, at least watch that. Um, like if you watch the school knock, there's a section talking specifically about anchor position you should watch that and, and understand how important it is. Even if you draw low to where, when you come up, you actually come up to the side of your face and then over onto your face rather than coming up and under. And, and the other thing too is you waste a lot of time in the pocket. So when, when you watch me shoot, um, you know, and I'm not saying I have, you know, the perfect technique of the world. Um, I feel like I feel like I've got closer to perfecting it over time. but one of the things that you'll notice with me and you if you go to our YouTube channel you could actually type in like John Dudley uh, training sessions because I have um, I actually have like live um, training sessions that I've posted so there's a few that I posted last month. So if you type in like John Dudley live practice and coaching, um, you'll see them. And if you watch those and you just watch how I, how I raise my bow to the target, I draw back, you know, I, I draw the bow stops. I come straight over to my anchor position. My head is moving no more than half an inch to acquire the front sight, rear sight, the bows being leveled. It's on the target, trusting the float. Engaging the safety or engaging the trigger and pulling through the shot. I mean, all that stuff's happening in, in, you know, approximately seven seconds on average for like that routine to happen. Now, what people do when they draw low and then they come up, it does, they, you know, they're trying to like find their anchor position with that facial tissue on top of their hand or on top of the arrow. And it's kind of like in golf or in baseball when you get into a batter box and there's people that just waddle, you know, they're just, I call it waddling or they're in there and, you know, they don't, it's not like they step up, put their club down to the ball, look at the ball, you know, look down, look down to the tee box, you know, or to the hole and then come back and make a swing they get in there they step around you know they bring their club down they lift it up they twitch it a few times they wiggle it back and forth i mean my grandfather was the worst at that if you played golf you're out like an extra hour because of (laughs) how long it would take you know i'm not even kidding like because of how long it would take him to like do all those like wiggles and waggles and so for me that is all time lost in the pocket of when you when you decide to shoot an arrow and you raise that bow up, at that point, you are putting pressure on your shoulder. So, you know, if you're in a weight room, and even if you only have a 10-pound weight, if you raise it up to your side <clears throat> and you're waiting 45 seconds, it, it, that thing is not stable at 45 seconds. Whereas if you were efficient enough to be able to raise that up, and know that after less than 14 seconds, you are going to be able to let it down and completely relax. Your ability to just keep doing that over and over and over again is so much higher. And the same is true when it comes to like, you know, drawing inefficiently, taking longer to get to your anchor position, taking longer to acquire the target, Um, any type of, like I said, waddling, Well, now if you're shooting forty arrows and you've added an extra ten or twenty seconds per arrow to do these types of things, you just really start to lose efficiency and accuracy.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I've always, I, 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 I knew that it was a something I was compensating for. I just never, never knew the reasons or the things that it could be uh, affecting me, how it could be affecting me. And it's, yeah, I mean. Uh, I I I guess it was a self serving question, but at the same time, I think you know, especially for a
1: lot of people deal with it, dude. Middle age shoulder I did. shoulder
0: problems are, are are very. I think for middle aged men, shoulder problems are something that a lot of us deal with and live with because it's like I don't have time to get my shoulder fixed. You know, I've got to work. Yeah. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. So uh, Kyler, I I guess. You know, in, in the sake of time and all that, uh, let's let's try to hit a few of these other questions and make sure that we that we touch on sure. a few of these things that that people have asked. Um, John, just so you know, we have we have like a community uh, here with Louisiana Hunter and um, you know, so we got a lot of guys that that may have some specific questions. We just kind of want to rapid fire a few of those at you and, and just get your feedback on them.
2: Um, yeah, so f- f- first one first one's uh, um, oh, it starts with a, a short story and then um, I think it's very familiar for a lot of people. So you've got somebody that's been bow hunting for a long time. They've killed a lot of deer, they've cut a lot of deer from ground blinds, killed a lot of deer from deer stand. and all of a sudden one day, this is a true story, they go to Kansas in November and they have a 160 inch buck at 18 yards and stale one over his back. Looks, looks at his bow like it's like something's wrong with it. Can't figure out what happened. Deer runs off, goes back in December, 150 inch buck in range, 23 yards, sells one over his back, freaks out, curses himself, goes down, goes back to the, um, uh, to the, uh, the camp slings, hundred arrows, all hitting good, deadly
1: shots from the ground.
2: What is a main culprit of how that can happen in
1: that situation? Well, first off, I want to know where he's hunting.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it's. Uh, I, mean, I
2: think it's. It's probably I mean, near some ninety. Some some east and west and north south roads somewhere in between. <laughs> some other. Some other city. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So this this happened to. Uh, well, actually, a friend of mine, my banker. Um, he um, he sailed it over the backs of. Um, of two deer and he's um kind of a self-proclaimed experienced bow hunter has never had this issue before um i what i suggested to him i'm curious on your feedback to this is i i think he's dropping his bow arm and he's not keeping that t shaped form like we were talking about the olympic archers earlier i think that he is when the deer get closer to him, he's he's shooting in a lower position like Locke was talking about, but he's not bending at the waist. That's what I think he was struggling with. Um, uh, what are some ideas that you may have for him or people like him?
1: Well, you said that he was, um, he was impacting, over, he was shooting over the top of him, right? Yes. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. this is just, this is just a classic um it's really a classic example of someone who actually has buck fever and and regardless of what they're wanting to say, you know, this is a very this is like kind of goes back to when people shoot through the antlers. Um, you know, one, he's he's coming down on the target, and as soon as he sees his scope coming into hair, he's hitting that target and what's happening is his level is coming onto that target before his pin ever does. And he's just simply shooting over the top. You know, he's probably Mm -hmm. hitting behind the pin, but he's just shooting over the top of that animal just because he's, you know, he's hitting the trigger before he's ever even there. I mean, it's really common. And when you, you know, and, and, as Locke can testify, when, you rec- when you're when you with people enough with a camera and you see what they do versus what they say they do, it's a huge
0: variation. <laughs> the camera does not lie. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: You know, if this guy is like drawing back level and then coming down onto the target, like as soon as he sees that freaking level coming onto that target, he's just hitting that trigger. And mm-hmm. the the pin hasn't even got down there yet. You know, I've seen it a lot on camera where guys draw back and, and, you know, they're literally in a continual motion as they're hitting the trigger, coming down on the target, you know, they're just kind of waiting to do that. And yeah, the hard thing with, you know, with big animals is, and especially when you know what it is, that's coming, you get yourself worked up. And Yeah, that's a that's a big problem. But it's also it's also one of the reasons why in this series that we talked about, why I'm very thorough at thorough at explaining the importance of actually having a process to to execute a shot, because so many people they focus just on getting the shot off, but a shot that, that if you get a shot off and it's not a good shot, it's irrelevant. So if people understand the importance of of consciously thinking, okay, I need to check my feet. Yeah, my feet are good. Cause in a tree stand, I've seen so many people hit their sleeves because they shoot across their body because they've Mm -hmm. never adjusted their feet, trying to shoot behind themselves on a, you know, out of a stand and they end up hitting their sleeve. And then obviously all hell breaks loose with an arrow. Once you do that. Um, But just having that conscious mind of this dude going through his checklist of, okay, my feet are good. Yeah. Grip. I'm not twerking the bow. Okay. Perfect. Um, Okay. I'm raising my shoulder up slow. Good. My shoulders down and forward. That's good on back drew back slow enough okay anchor position i don't want facial pressure anchor positions light good center my peep sight perfect okay pin on the target good letting off my safety then pull 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 and if you're talking to yourself that way then those types of like fight or flight instincts aren't aren't going to happen because you're occupying your conscious mind the conscious mind can only really think of one thing. It can only process like one thing at a time. So, and, and also more importantly, if he triggers this fight or flight, like Holy cow, there's a big buck. If I shoot that thing, everybody at camp, Oh my God, what will the guys think? This is the big daddy, you know, Mm so-and-so wanted to shoot him. He's supposed to be at the other stand, but Holy shit, he's in this food plot. Like, okay. At that point, Dude, you're in a bad place mentally. I think Locke's and, actually
2: said that where he he's he's talked about envisioning yourself holding the horns before you've killed the deer is yeah. it was oh. a big problem there. If, if, oh, yeah,
1: absolutely, that's, that's a terrible thing. So funny enough, like I told you last night, I posted the last or the fourth the fourth part to curing buck fever and target panic the video series. The mm-hmm. title. Is called process not the prize and it's oh, nice. hundred it's a hundred percent in relation to exactly what you're talking about so and you know I know you guys have other questions and I honestly I'm a little bit limited on time but this this kind of goes a little bit deeper because once you trigger this fight or flight process in your mind the cool thing is If your conscious is doing that, again, your conscious doesn't do multiple things. It's going to focus on one one task. And the subconscious is not going to be thinking about holding the horns and what am I going to tell everybody back at camp. The subconscious doesn't do that. The conscious does. And so if he knows he's already thinking about this, then what he has to do is he has to reset that conscious mind to where he can actually Turn off that fight or flight, and and reset it, and then really focus on um, on just that shot routine, and it'll help lower all those nerves, and you know, and 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 cure that. So, one of the things that I learned from a sports psychologist was about the ability to like reset your switch for your conscious thoughts, especially in. For In my case at the time, it was, you know, if I was in a medal match or if I was, you know, in contention for a world record and, you know, which happened and honestly, multiple world records weren't achieved on the last arrow because of exactly that. I was like, holy cow, if I shoot this world record, people are going to be thinking this, this is going to be awesome for my sponsors, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a number of things, but what I learned was, you're like, I told you, you can reset it. And as to, to like, give you an example to this, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a scenario. So if you were having a conversation with someone on a, on a anything, you know, my wife, my, me and my wife are in eating some charcuterie, having some wine, we're in a conversation, everything's good. And actually this happened lock freaking texts me and says, Hey dude, um, (laughs) What you know, what time do you think um, you'll be able to go in the morning? Seven a.m. Sounds good. Put my phone back in my target or in my pocket, look at Sharon, and I'm like, what were we talking about? <laughs> yeah. So you're saying lock lock ruined your dinner, yeah. is what you're saying. Well no, lock, I just had to dinner. I had to get back on track with what I was thinking about yeah. before my attention got diverted and my conscious was thinking about something else. So, you know, you have to, there's triggers that people can do to try to focus on a task to where your conscious resets. And it's like, wait a minute, I have to focus on doing this, doing this, doing this. So for me, I always had, there's two things that I would always do. Like, I always had a big, like, buck cherry in my hunting pants and um it was like in this little bitty side like lighter pocket and whenever a buck would come or i'd see him out there and i knew like oh crap it's gonna take a while for the sucker to get in and honestly this i use this in mississippi one time on a buck um on my uncle kenny's place i remember i saw him a long way out and I'm like, oh man, you know, don't think about it. Don't think about it. So I like got this buck cherry out and I just started, I would polish it with my thumb and I would just sit there and polish it and just make circles on it and polish this thing and polish it and polish it, polish it. And I'd kind of look up every now and then and look. And then when it came time to like, okay, he's going to be within range here in a minute, I would put that away and then I would, talk my shot routine stance grip shoulder anchor p pull through stance grip anchor and i wouldn't give myself the ability to say holy cow what's kenny gonna think when i finally you know shoot a pope and young here or whatever it so there's there's ways to deal with it um but what happened to him because i've seen it a lot is a hundred percent just uncontrollable uh, you know his uncontrollable index finger hitting that trigger as soon as his his sight aperture hit hair and honestly if he had a multi-pin sight freaking first green pin to hit that hair boom (laughs) 60 R 10 (laughs) take 100 100 percent like 100 percent
0: so you you said you were pushed for time. I'm going to take the next question because uh, I promised sure. this person that they would that I would ask it, and, and and we we know we all gotta wrap things up sooner than later. So uh, the question, and this is kind of going in a different direction. Another reason I wanted to, to to do this one before we ran out. The question is, what is your process for making cut charts on steep angled shots?
1: Um. Well. Now I don't have to have a process because I have a rangefinder that does it. Um, but yeah, back when I shot competitively, and honestly, you couldn't use a rangefinder for that. You would you would really need to learn it and learn cut charts. Um, and I actually uh, have an old cut chart that what I would do if you didn't have um, a rangefinder that did it for you what i always did was i would actually um stick with like 3m tape i stuck a inclinometer which is this little device to where when you raise it up or tilt it down you can squeeze this little button on the top and it'll hold this arrow in the position that it was in when you pointed it up or down and then you would look at it on the side and it would say 37 degrees and so at that point you know if it said 37 degrees you would refer to your cut chart um which on that cut chart would have you know what you would need to do you know whether it was an uphill shot or downhill shot and everything's just based on percentage so i just memorized that chart you know and i had a i had a um you know, I, I had this little card that I made that would I would put on the other side of my rangefinder that I had kind of uh, weatherproofed with like one of those driver's license things you used to like run through those machines. Um, I can send you guys uh, a picture of what my cut chart was, but honestly, um, you're way better off getting a rangefinder that factors in those ballistics. And the full draw four, from leupold has been the most bulletproof i go through a ton of rangefinders it's been the most bulletproof and a really good one Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you do want to learn on my phone i actually downloaded a free app it's just called angle pro and so when you open it up you can kind of hold your phone kind of like a and look down the top of it just like a shotgun rail and wherever you point that on the side, it'll tell you the degree. And then if you have that little uh, that little chart that I that I told you about, um, you would be able to, you know, quickly reference that, and you would know what percentage um, that you deduct. Now, what people need to realize when you're shooting on angles. You know, some people still think that if you're shooting uphill, you need to add, and if you shoot downhill, you need to add, and or downhill it's always and take a track. away. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is, anytime you have an angle, you're actually shooting a shorter distance um, horizontally than the actual angle to the target or the direct line to the target. So you have to think of it like this and for anyone in louisiana or mississippi this should be an easy one because you know that's the land of you know being up in the nosebleed section in in your climber Mm -hmm. um (laughs) if you're if you're 30 feet up a tree and you're shooting you know you've got to make a a shot that when you're ranging it up there to your deer you know maybe it's saying 25 yards but What matters is how gravity is affecting that arrow in a perfectly horizontal plane. It's not the direct line going all the way down. So if you can imagine it this way, let's say you're up at 30 feet and you're ranging this deer and it's telling you it's 25 yards. Well, what you really need to know is if that deer, and this will work good if you're in a pine plantation, if that deer is standing next to that tree, if you range that same tree that it's standing next to straight across from you up in the air at 30 feet, how far is that? Because Mm -hmm. that is the distance that your arrow is going to be affected by gravity. And that's going to be the distance that you have to shoot that for. So, you know, if you range, if you range that tree straight across from you, you know, or I level with you and it's 21 yards. That's what you have to shoot it for. You don't have to shoot it for, you know, for that whole distance going all the way down. And the same, the same is true when you're shooting uphill. There's a small variation, but the reality is, Anytime you're shooting on an angle, the actual horizontal distance is going to be shorter than the full length. So technically you're always going to have to shoot it for less, which is why they call them cut charts, not add charts. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think, I think the one big thing to note there is anyone that has a rangefinder, you need to be aware of whether or not you're rangefinder is in an angle compensation mode or not because it's probably I, I i can't think of a rangefinder that's out today that doesn't have that automatic or at least have that function um and if if it's already in ankle compensation mode it tell me if i'm right here if you were to shoot that tree at eye level 30 feet up that a deer standing next to and then you shot the deer with the range finder they should read the same if it's if it's doing correct angle compensation am i right
1: yeah the way you said it there would be pretty accurate now what people do need to realize and this isn't something that's like talked about unfortunately but um i learned it the hard way some manufacturers their their algorithms and their pretty much their mathematical equations that are built into that system, they max out at a certain angle. So um, I know that one brand I had, once it hit like 27 degrees, it only ever used that number for a deduction no matter how far it went, which uh-huh. meant the, the more severe the angle, the, the worse it got. Um, yeah. but from a tree standpoint, like for a deer hunter point of view, it was going to be adequate, but if you took that same, uh, range finder to like, you know, a mountain total archery challenge event, or if you took it on like, you know, a freaking, uh, a hill country mule deer hunt or, um, or like a sheep hunt or, or a goat hunt, you would have really been screwed.
0: Mm -hmm. but yeah
1: it's um normally it'll say like ang or something inside of your thing when you're in that angle mode but Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of them have it you know a lot of them have it and if and and if you do um it's a good investment if you uh if you don't have it it's a really good investment to get that in there and Honestly, uh, you know, you could, like, depending on the style of shot, like, you know, if you would have been telling me this buddy of yours was, you know, was out on his first mule deer hunt and saw this awesome mule deer and felt like both times he made perfect shots and he was high. Well, if he ended up telling me, like, if you said, well, both of the shots are like 50 something yards, he shot over the back. And if I said, well, what kind of rangefinder did he have? And you know, you said, well, like one of the old single eyepiece Bushnell ones, well, they didn't have angle compensation. So it would yeah. be easy to shoot for too much yardage when your rangefinder doesn't deduct it, you know. So a hundred percent that'd be critical for any bow hunter.
0: Well,
2: well, I appreciate you you answering that and 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 uh we had a couple more questions that weren't nearly as pressing as the ones that we answered. So uh, first of all, I really appreciate the, um, the, how much you elaborate on your answers and I think that's going to help out our listeners a ton. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, we'll do it again. The only reason I got to go is because it's my 15 year anniversary. So yeah, I hear, I hear my wife upstairs, like (laughs) around, so I don't want her to, I don't want her to go to work without, uh, without giving her a hug so yeah
0: man well we thank you a lot and and, and hey like seriously as much as we could deep dive and you keep referencing it like the, the the free content that you put out there through knock on will answer so many questions people just need to take the time to go look at it i mean it's it's there oh That's yeah. Awesome. yeah
1: yeah I mean, <laughs> I mean i i hope so i hope so and if not then you know reach out and let me know what i'm missing and i'll i'll get it i'll get one done yeah well you should be you should be getting a box if you haven't already gotten
2: yet gotten it yet we um uh, we sent you some um some black jet black leather knock-on custom coasters that we made for you as a thank you so uh, appreciate everything you do for us and and uh and thank you for joining us on the podcast john
1: awesome dudes thank you so much i appreciate it